Oh, uh, wood chipper is a very nice thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jesus.
Body Talk, a space for decolonizing. This is the indigenous body politic. For approximately two years, I was a paid FBI operative operating in the American Indian movement at the highest levels. After Doug Durham was exposed, the paranoia began. Everybody was an informant. And I think a lot of people start using it. If they didn't like somebody, they would just say that. And of course it would spread like wildfire, you know, moccasin telegraph. There was people who uh, postured and said things like, well, maybe Doug Durham and Anime were some kind of a team that infiltrated at the top level. She knew what was happening, the big picture of it all, because everybody during the Wounded Knee trials and all that, everybody was celebrating and in the wrong way. And she would kind of get disgusted with it. And so I guess that was the main reason why we'd pull back. And she was, she would get upset and just leave and then we went see her. You gotta understand that there was this period there after Wounded Knee where some of these guys were getting pretty outrageous, quite frankly. Quite frankly. I mean, you know, some of these guys, you know, 26 women, 26 children by, you know, how many different wives. And, uh, there was a lot of, you know, drinking. I, you know, I saw people that were drunk for a week and then sober up the next day they were down at Sundance you know <sighs> I'm serious you know so there was a lot of for me a disillusionment about these you know how could they do that her own knowing the leadership within the American was a threat not just to the men but to the women too where anime was taken aside and farmed in New Mexico by Bob Robidoux, Dino Butler and Leonard Peltier. I met her under not too pleasant circumstances. Uh, my cousin Leonard uh, told me that we were going for a ride in a car. Robodeau was with Leonard Peltier, a symbol of the movement who has spent the last 24 years in jail. She just said that they were asking her questions like, you know, um, who are you? Where do you come from? Anime Pikmin? Yes. What tribe are you from? Uh, I'm from the Mi'kmaq tribe. It's uh, Nova Scotia, Canada. Um, well, um, are you an informer? If anybody's going to say, yeah, I am, by the way. You know. But they, I, I got the feeling from her, you know, that it was a very scary moment. One of the leaders, I overheard them talking about Annie Mae, and they said that she was an FBI informant. Did you ever think she was an informant? No. Was she ever questioned about that, being an informant? By she wasn't questioned by me. What about Leonard? Did he ever? Oh, no, I don't, I don't, no, I mean, I, I don't believe he did. I don't believe that. We both solidly trusted Anime. They didn't trust her. Do you mean I? Um, they didn't trust her. 
Kamuk Banks, who has never spoken publicly about the inner workings of AIM, has a particular reason for remembering that incident. I knew that she had been questioned, which was in the same time I had learned about her relationship. I learned about her relationship maybe the day before with Dennis, and I was very upset with her. Then the next day I had heard that she had been interrogated. We were going to take Anime Aquash and question her. And uh, because some people in the movement felt that she was an informant. We uh, took Anime by car away from camp and uh, stopped the car. And Leonard and uh, Anime walked away from the car and over a little hill. The gun was put up next to her head by Leonard and that comes from four different sources and the next source of course was Anna May, and Anna May was the one that said uh, if you believe that I'm an informer then you might as well go ahead and pull the trigger. Those weren't exact words but close enough to it. Somebody that she had considered a close friend had gotten drunk and held a gun to her head and that he said um, Anna May everybody's saying that you're that you're giving us up and that everywhere you go, somebody's arrested. She told him, um, if you believe that about me, then I give you permission to pull the trigger. I actually didn't find out the, some of the details of that particular interrogation until I talked to Iris Thundercloud a couple of years ago. Like I said, we were comparing notes and finding out that we were <clears throat> both interrogated about the same time from the same people. And uh, it was Iris that told me that they put a gun in her mouth, you know, hey. She convinced them that she was okay. What did you think? What, was she an informant? No, <laughs> no. I know her too well and I trust my judgment. And at that time you heard rumors, you know, well, she got out of jail and they just let her go. and. And I remember Anime telling me that they were setting us up. When the kids were playing, then we had a chance to talk. And at that point, she had told me that they, uh, they, um, the American Indian movement had uh, were, you know, talking amongst themselves, whoever these people were, and they uh, thought that she was an informer. I said, well, why are you going back? She said, I have to go back. And I have to just let them know that they're wrong. So she was fully aware that, uh, that by being a part of our group that she was putting her life in jeopardy. And she understood that fully. The leadership of the American Indian Movement at that time was well aware of what happened to Anna May. And two of the leaders ordered her death. Vernon Balcourt made the phone call to the house on Rosebud, which is my brother's house. And, and Clyde Balcourt took the, the, the call from Vernon and then issued the order for her death, her murder. members of the American Indian Movement and, and she was executed right on top of this hearing.
she was shot in the back of the head, fell over the bank, and then laid where she was found, and, and basically left to die. And um, I feel that it was uh, a result of uh, paranoia uh, amongst people within the American media movement that she was an informant. There's no question in my mind, Anna Mayakwa should be alive today if they did not believe that she was an FBI informant. Was she? She was not an FBI informant. Definitely was not. She's never just another dead Indian to us. She's our mother. about a merry old tool oh what could I use this is deep the New Testament all this has forgotten now we're taught that Christianity was a new revelation of truth and its founders enlightened men and saints nothing could be farther from the truth ignorance is the soil in which religions grow and Christianity is no exception the New Testament itself calls the disciples unlearned and ignorant men and the Jewish judges before whom their converts were brought pronounced them as idiots or idioti, from which we get the word idiots. Still later, they were called fools in Christ. The Samaritan doctor called them tartaks, tartaks, T-H-A-R-T-A-C's at their period in the reign of Thartak. Thartak was a comedic god of credulity and vulgar faith. He was portrayed as a man with a book, a cloak, and the head of an ass. He appears in the Old Testament as Tartak, one of the foreign gods that Solomon worshipped. If then the leaders of, the, of Christianity were ignorant and credulous, what are the masses that follow them? According to Leakey, they were, in all intellectual virtues, lower than any other period in history of mankind. They were made up mostly of the poor and the obscure who were drawn into embrace the Gospels by an inner need and whose low position on the social scale was a standing ground of reproach against the new religion from the side of its adversaries. It is only the religion of simpletons, the ignoble, the senseless, the slaves, and the women, folk, and children whom they wish to persuade to join their congregation or to, dis or to persuade. This is what Celsus said. Celsus said, The rude and the menial masses who had hitherto been uh, almost beneath the notice of the Greek and the Roman culture flocked into Christianity. Okay, And Hodges on Celsus said, He disliked them for their poverty and ignorance. They seemed to be presumptuous and impertinent people who, understood, who undertook to be the teachers, having never learned. 
I will not sit in the seat of, of synods while geese and cranes confusedly wrangle, St. Gregory's, Gregory said. The many had begun to play with psychic and spiritual forces let loose from the mysteries, and the many went mad for a time and have not yet regained their senses. They had a full share of tumult, anarchy, injustice, and war. The primitive Christians were men whose ardor was fierce in proportion to their ignorance. These are all the people talking about who the Christians were back then. All this the apologists smothered in lies, and now our deluded preachers, teachers, playwrights, and scenarists paint these early Christians as the inspired few, fighting and dying for some true faith. A brand, uh, the, and brand the really inspired um, so-called pagans as ignoramuses. Tacitus calls um, Christianity pernicious superstition. The new faith is a perverse and extravagant superstition. This is what Pliny the Elder had said. A superstition vain and fanatic, said Suetonius. Today, a still deluded race looks upon these statements as pagan opposition to the light of the world, where they were just but deluded uh, people uh, of, the, of, of our spiritual understandings. Thus, what the church, whatever the early Christians suffered, it was not as the church asserts because of the new gospel they preach, but because of the old absurdity they resurrected. Belief in literal mythology. Okay, this is why the Christians were persecuted, because they were believing in literal mythology. Another son of God. Number 16 had appeared miraculously conceived of the virgin born. A third part of the Trinity walked about in Galilee. This was that blasphemy barbarously told. Porphyry had denounced, yet a band of fanatics called the Christians was actually demanding the restoration of this old religion or this old fable. In other words, all of the, 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 the Greek myths, all of the old um, uh, Persian myths, they wanted to literalize it and say that God did walk the earth. And the people were telling them, listen, it's crazy. All the wisdom knowledge of the ages was burnt in the marketplace, in the light of the world, and triumphanted, and the light of the world of reason. Ah, all of, let me get this right, all of the wisdom knowledge of the ages was burnt in the marketplace. The light of the world had triumphed, and the light of reason had died. That's sweet, I like that. Now, they all tell you that Nero burnt Rome, right? No, he didn't. That was a big lie. What happened was the Christians began setting fire to all the old information. All of the old libraries, all of the old places where they had their, all, of their, all of their rivals who were down on Christianity. The Christians began to grow in power and they began setting these small fires as a form of protest. Now Nero, as crazy and as sick as all the line was, Nero used to hold these particular events where even the criminals were protected. It was, there was no death sentence under Nero. This is historically facted. Alright, you had life imprisonment or if you were crucified you had to have done really something stupid. But Nero was built up by the Christians as being this heinous person who tortured Christians and it never happened. It was the Christians who were the ones who trashed Nero. And it was the Christians who burnt the churches of all of their uh, adversaries. And then that's what happened with... Um, 
Okay, let's just get to this. The destruction of all the evidence of Christianity's Gnostic and pagan source was really the first work of the church. It was the evangelists themselves who started it in Antioch, as, this, as stated in, a, in Acts. Speaking, just, speaking of just such things, the Emperor Julian said he would deal with them more at length when we begin to explore the monstrous deeds and fraudulent machinations of the evangelists. And their followers, Edward Carpenter, wrote this, They took special pains to destroy the pagan records and so obliterate the evidence of their own dishonesty. By order of the church, all the books of the Gnostic Basilides were burned. Likewise, Porphyry's 36 volumes were burned. Pope Gregory VII burned the Apollo Library, filled with ancient law. Emperor Theodosius had 27,000 schools of the, mysterious, of the mysteries papyrus rolls burned because they contained the doctrinal basis of the Gospels. By offering rich rewards, Ptolemy Philadelphus gathered 270,000 ancient documents. These two were burnt for the same reason. As someone has said, the early Christians heated their baths with the ancient wisdom. And that knowledge they may have contained, and what knowledge they may have contained. Nor did the destruction end with the founders of Christianity. The fanatics they made carried on their work. The Crusades burnt all the books they could find, including original Hebrew scrolls, Kemetic scrolls, and the like. In 1233, the works of Maimonides were burned along with 12,000 volumes of the Talmud. In 1244, 18,000 books of various kinds were destroyed. According to Draper, Cardinal Zemes, X-I-M-E-N-E-S, Zeminis, delivered to the flames in the square of Grenada 80,000 Arabic manuscripts. On finding similar law in the New World, the Spanish Christians destroyed it and the temples that contained it. All evidence of source destroyed, the Christian fathers could now substitute their own stupidity and absurdities. And to substantiate them, they altered words and inserted verses that did not exist in the original texts. Celsus, a witness to this falsification, said of the revisionists, some of them, as it were in a drunken state producing self-induced illusions, remodeled their gospel from its first written form and reformed it so that they may be able to refute the objections brought against it. On the same subject, Gerald Massey wrote, they made dumb all pagan testimony against the unparalleled imposture then being perfected in Rome. They had almost reduced the first four centuries to silence on all the matters of the most vital importance for any proper understanding of the true religion of the Christian superstition. The mythos having been at, at last published as a human history, everything else was suppressed or forced to support the fraud. It is well known the Christian fathers were notorious forgers. Even the Catholics themselves admit that. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, quote, in all these departments, forgery and interpolation was well, as well as ignorance had wrought mischief on a grand scale. This is the Catholics who are the original Christians saying this. Indeed, Pope Stephen II went so far as to write a letter and sign St. Peter's name to it. When we know, <laughs> check it. When we know that, that Peter never existed, these deceptions take on a new meaning. They give the key to the church, entire history, motive, and they give us the keys to it. 
and the whole motive and purpose, dom domination, wealth, and power. To this end, all else was done, including the fakeries, forgeries, and the burning of books. In spite of all this, we are told the founders of our faith were good men, filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore above all crime and cruelty of common day. Such is the teaching, yet their own words belie these lies. Consider this from Jerome, one of the original Christian fathers, for instance. If thy father lies down across thy threshold, if thy mother uncovers to thine eyes the bosom that suckled thee, trample on your father's lifeless body, trample on your mother's bosom, and with eyes unmoistened and dry, fly to the Lord that calleth thee. This is the Christian zeal and the very opposite of religion. And Tertullian, who was a black man, gloating on the prospects of seeing the philosophers in hell enchanted, say, how I shall laugh, how shall I rejoice, how shall I triumph when I see so many these illustrious kings who were said to have mounted into heaven, groaning with Jupiter their God in the lowest depths of hell. And St. Augustine, another Negro, on his religion stated, The enemies thereof I hate vehemently. Oh, that thou wilt slay them with thy two-edged sword. And who were these enemies? Atheists, infidels, destroyers of the truth? No, indeed, the keepers of the truth. Those anonymous Gnosticans. Those abhorrent Gnostics. Here we shall recall the, the words of France Sweeney. It may truly be said that the darkest and bloodiest records in history can show us, that, that history can show us are the attacks on Orthodox Church, of, of the Orthodox Church upon the Gnostic mystics. Oh yes, it takes more than ignorance to found a religion. It takes dishonesty, cruelty, and war as well. That Christianity had such a beginning may seem to be faithful, um, may seem to the faithful quite incredible, but if so, it is only because the little that they know about it came from priestly apologists lying for the same reasons as their predecessors. The unbelieving should read contemporary historians, Eusebius for instance, in 250 A.D. That, that A.D. means after the delusion. <laughs> He left a record of the church at that time and it reads like this. And this is Eusebius of Caesarea. He was there at the council of Nicaea. He was there putting all the dirt down. And he says, But since from our great freedom we have fallen into neglect and sloth, when each had begun to envy and slander the other, when we waged intestine war against the other, wounding each other with words as with sword and spears, when leaders assailed leaders and people assailed people, hurling epithets at each other, when fraud, when fraudulent hypocrisy had reached the highest heights of malice, when devoid of all sense, we gave no thought to the worship of God, but believing like certain impious men that human affairs are controlled by no providence, we heaped crime upon crime, when our pastors, despising the rule of religion, fought with each other intent on nothing but abuse, threats, jealousy, hatred, and mutual enmity, each claiming for himself a principality as a sort of tyranny. And we are asked to believe that these men were guided and inspired by the Holy Ghost. Now I want to read this to you. 
to cite only a few of these Christians. Here are what the Christians... Now you're supposed to be under the whole body of Christ. This is what these Christians who are vying for power broke themselves down into. These were the different sects, S-E-C-T-S. The Arians, A-R-I-A-N-S. The Nestorians, the, Marti the Martionets, the Marionettes, the Marionites, the Jacobites, the, the, Bas the Basilidians, the, 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 the Carpocratians, the Colridians, the Eutrician, the Eutrician, the Eutrexians, the Sibylians, the Valentinians, the Gnostics, the Ebonites, and later the Jesuits. Each of these had their own interpretation of the scriptures, and the form that came down to us today is based on the one that won the war over all the others. That's all it was. Another fallacy perpetrated by the church concerns its creeds, dogmas, rites, and rituals. The gullible people are led to believe these all derive from God or Christ, the apostles and the scriptures. They should read their own Bishop Hillary. He told them where it came from. Quote, It is a thing equally deplorable and dangerous that there are as many doctrines and inclinations and as many sources of blasphemy as there are faults among us. Because we make creeds arbitrarily and explain them as arbitrarily. Each year, nay, every moon, we make new creeds to describe invisible mysteries. We repent of what we have done. We defend those we re who repent. We anathemize those whom we defend. We condemn either the doctrines of our others in ourselves or of our own that are of others and reciprocally tear each other to pieces. We have been the cause of each other's ruin. We went to all the powers when we were young. At that time, children could not dance. Only people over 50 years of age could dance. Hmm. Most people do not know this, that the government forbid children to dance Indian. And that was so they could wipe out the culture and the young people. And then finally, the new generation would never know what happened. Never know what happened. Don't you even know how to be a real Indian? I guess not. Well, shit, no wonder. Jeez. I guess I'll have to teach you then, ain't it?
Don't you even know how to be a real Indian? I guess not. Well, shit, no wonder. Jeez. I guess I'll have to teach you then, ain't it? Ain't it? Body talk. It's my third name, and it, it translated into English, it roughly means works for the people. I was given that name here in Porcupine on a July 4th weekend in 1972. And I grew up in Northern California after we left the res when I was five years old. And my mother was a stickler for knowing your relatives. Your Tioshpai. Nevertheless, 
and then my younger brother Deus, we, we got to know freedom. It was a much safer time in America then, in the mid and late 40s. Look at America today. Ah, oh, the children wouldn't, you know, the children of America, the teenagers of America today would not recognize the America I grew up in. So when AIM came along, they were not only proud of who they were, but they had a touch with our reality today. That was back in 1969. Well, AIM got me back to my people, back to my homeland, back to my language, back to my songs, back to my values as an individual and as a Lakota. That's what AIM did for me personally, liberated me to be Lakota, liberated me to be proud of who I am and why, and not be afraid to tell the world. It's August on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in western South Dakota, and the annual powwow is in full swing. The celebration is a highlight for the Oglala Sioux Tribe, bringing together thousands of Native Americans to sing, dance, and honor their traditional culture. Tonight's good cheer, however, is in stark contrast to everyday life in one of the most difficult places to live in the United States. Few people in the Western Hemisphere have shorter life expectancies. Males, on average, live to just 48 years old, females to 52. Almost half of all people above the age of 40 have diabetes, and the economic realities are even worse. Unemployment rates are consistently above 80%. In Shannon County, inside the Pine Ridge Reservation, half the children live in poverty, and the average income is $8,000 a year. But there are funds available, a federal pot now worth more than a billion dollars that sits here in the U.S. Treasury Department waiting to be collected by nine Sioux tribes. The money stems from a 1980 Supreme Court ruling that set aside $105 million to compensate the Sioux for the taking of the Black Hills in 1877. There, an isolated mountain range rich in minerals that stretch from South Dakota to Wyoming. The only problem, the Sioux never wanted the money because the land was never for sale. The Black Hills are very important to the Sioux uh, Indian tribes because they are the spiritual center of Sioux people. For tribal attorney Mario Gonzalez, the compensation fund is the embodiment of Indian mistreatment by the U.S. government, and the taking of the Black Hills was the gravest sin of all. The Sioux tribes have always maintained that that confiscation is illegal and that the tribes must uh, have some of their ancestral lands returned to them. Compared to the natural resource-rich Black Hills, the reservations the Sioux were relegated to are mostly dry, desolate landscapes. Shannon County has one of the lowest per capita incomes in the United States. At one time, the Sioux Indians were a wealthy people, and they had you know, a place here that satisfied all their needs. The land dispute dates back to 1868, when the U.S. signed a treaty at Fort Laramie that set aside the Black Hills as part of the Great Sioux Reservation. 
But when gold was discovered in the hills a few years later, the floodgates opened and western pioneers poured in, and the Fort Laramie Treaty was broken. There's a long history of treaties having been made with Indian tribes that were broken. Uh, some would say that no treaty was ever kept with an Indian tribe. Ross Swimmer served as a special trustee for American Indians during the George W. Bush administration. It's been a psychological issue for all the Sioux tribes all this time, and much of that land is still owned by the federal government. And so the tribes are simply saying, well, wait a minute, you know, you took our land, we want the land back. From 2003 to 2009, Swimmer oversaw the Black Hills Trust account, one that grew substantially from the initial $105 million settlement. Tribal monies invested have to be in basically government securities or better, where there's no danger of loss. Uh, what, 30 years later, it's worth a billion dollars, so it's not a bad return. But the Sioux say that money is far less than what the land is worth. The Black Hills are a major draw for tourists, helping to promote an industry that generates over $2 billion of economic activity every year for the state of South Dakota. And there are still questions on the best way to distribute the billion dollars. Any compensation money for the Sioux would mainly be distributed on a per capita basis. If you've got 100,000 Sioux and a billion dollars, you're talking about 10,000 apiece or something. Uh, that goes pretty fast. That type of plan is totally unacceptable to the Sioux tribes because when you give out per capita payments, the money is gone in you know, a year or two and then the tribes still end up with uh, nothing to show for uh, their ancestral lands. After more than 130 years of standoff over what the U.S. government owes the Sioux, President Obama's election to office appeared to provide an opening. I'm absolutely committed to moving forward with you and forging a new and better future together. The president said he would meet with the Sioux tribes on the Black Hills land claim, the first to do so. Obama said the nine tribes must first agree unanimously on a proposal among themselves. That is a problem, says Native American journalist Tim Giago, who has covered this story for more than 30 years. We got a lot of infighting, a lot of squabbling amongst our own people. There have been meetings taking place in the past year and a half, two years, uh, on the different reservation in which uh, a lot of the people are coming together. And uh, they're sitting down and actually discussing the, the whole prospects about where we're going to go. Teresa Tubles is a former Oglala Sioux president who helped organize the efforts to restart the Black Hills talks following Obama's 2008 election. She agrees with Giago that there are serious divisions, but says that the tribes are making progress. This is the closest we've gotten. And um, believe me, it's hard to unite people. You know, it's hard to stay positive, but you have to. I'm tired of this poverty. Tired of this rut that we live in. Gonzalez says the tribes have formed a reparations alliance and are aiming to finalize a proposal to be submitted to Congress by the end of the year. He hopes that proposal will give the Sioux shared ownership of over one million acres of federal land within the Black Hills, along with financial compensation. But he quickly points out that the Sioux are not seeking any private property and knows that popular tourism attractions will be off the table. The tribes are, are trying to be realistic. When the Sioux tribes are asking that all the federal lands be returned to them, that does not include Mount Rushmore, uh, post offices, or any property that is being used by the government um, for 
governmental purposes. And what Gonzalez and the Sioux are asking for does have precedent. President Nixon returned nearly 50,000 acres of federal lands in the Carson National Forest in New Mexico to the Taos Pueblo tribe in 1970. And although recent polls show the younger generation of the Sioux more willing to accept the Black Hills money, some of the poorest people in the country have thus far remained steadfast in their opposition to taking it. It's a tough group up there. You know, I'm amazed that they have been willing to sit on the money, so to speak, this long without, uh, you know, taking the money. We accept the money, then we don't have the treaty obligations that the federal government has with us for taking our land, for taking our gold, all our resources out of the, the Black Hills. Sioux leaders say they will take up the Black Hills issue again at tribal meetings in the coming months. Feed me Seymour. Feed me all night long. <laughs> That's right, boy. You can do it. Feed me Seymour. Feed me all night long. <laughs> Cause if you feed me Seymour, I can grow up big and strong. <laughs> you eat blood, Audrey, too. Let's face it. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Kill people? I make it worth your while. What? You think this is all coincidence, baby? The sudden success around here? Depressed coverage? Look, you're a plant, an inanimate object. <laughs> Does this look inanimate to you, punk? If I can talk and I can move, who's to say I can't do anything I want? MHA Nation is number one tribal oil produced on American soil. I was basically being used as a janitor to clean up his byproducts there. Tex saw somebody that could go out and make him money while he was chairman. How could Tex Hall let himself be taken in by a guy like James Hendrickson who has a rap sheet as long as your arm? They basically made a midnight run out here and, and dumped Casey's body. And my Indian name is Ipotahishe, and that's red-tipped arrow. That was my father's name. You know, you're first to draw blood, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to our chairman, red-tip arrow, Mr. Tex Hall. MHA in 2009 had about 50 oil wells, and here we are today, well over 1,000 oil wells and many more to come with a refinery now that is under construction. In April, Tex Hall hosted his third annual oil and gas expo. Sovereignty by the barrel, the dream starts here. The theme, sovereignty by the barrel. As the three-term tribal leader of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation, Tex Hall oversaw the boom years of oil development on North Dakota's Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. Fort Berthold now produces a third of all oil in the state. When oil was discovered, 
We were poor. We didn't have the money like many tribes. It's hard to be sovereign on an empty stomach. And so he said, the more oil that is produced on Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, the more revenue we can create to create our own regulatory scheme, we'll develop it and we'll protect the environment our way. We won't depend on the great white father in Washington, D.C. Texas testified in Congress to set our own codes and to do away with any type of oversight of fracking or development or flaring, any EPA requirements, and they just want free reign on development. My husband and I receive a royalty from this well. Oil revenue has helped Marilyn Hudson's family afford better medical care, but Chairman Hall's coziness with the industry always concerned her. I call this file Tex Hall Waterloo. He's the one that coined that phrase, sovereignty by the barrel. And that phrase, to me, it, it's almost shameful. Oil has brought hundreds of millions in revenue to the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation. Like elsewhere in North Dakota, the lure of big money has attracted many out-of-state workers. So pretty much two loads a day. It's also led to a rise in crime, traffic deaths, and pollution. All the yellow dots that you see out there, those are all flares. The tribes do have environmental codes, but as chairman, Tex Hall had the authority to enforce them or not. For example, when a million gallons of toxic brine spilled on the reservation last summer, threatening tribal drinking water, even the tribe's own environmental director, Edmund Baker, did not know the extent of contamination. The area down there has been put in the national media the largest spill on any Indian reservation of this kind. It was completely discouraging for me as an environmental director, not only in that capacity, but as a tribal member, that things were withheld. I think generally it's safe to say there's conflict of interest there. With so much money and outsiders coming onto the reservation, Tex Hall was in a unique position to both regulate the oil boom and profit from it. While he was tribal chairman, Tex Hall owned a private oil company on the side called Mahishu, basically seeking contracts from the same industry he was supposed to keep in check. It's entirely legal to have a business. So I had a business and the people elected me because of, partly because of my business skills. You know, and I'm able, I'm able to go toe to toe with uh, anybody from Marathon or Kodiak or whatever oil company because I know the business. Tex saw somebody that could go out and make him money, and while he was chairman. That somebody was James Henriksen. In 2011, Henriksen and his soon-to-be wife, Sarah Kreveling, were looking for access to Fort Berthold's oil bonanza. To do that, they needed a tribal partner. Henriksen first called Steve Kelly, a tribal member with a trucking company. James Henriksen called me from Texas and told me he had 10 trucks and he wanted to come up here and sublease. So I said, come on up. Very nice looking guy, charismatic, very muscular. Sarah, very nice looking lady, very smart. As James Henriksen had always asked me, he'd say, who's the chief? Who's the chief? Who's the main guy? Who's running the show here? And I said, well, Tex Hall is. Within a year, Henriksen and Kreveling had endeared themselves to the tribal chairman. They subleased with Tex Hall's company, Maheshu, and set up an office in his garage. What Tex Hall and others on Fort Berthold did not realize then is that Henriksen already had a long history of felony convictions in Oregon, including burglary, theft, and assault. 
James Hendrickson, if anybody had investigated his background, they would have found a rap sheet a mile long. He came on this reservation and he started to take advantage of people. And who helped him do that? Tex did. Working for the chairman gave Henriksen and his company Blackstone access and prestige on the reservation. All this stuff was working in 2013, 2012. Steve Kelly began to lose jobs to Tex Hall and his new partner. I said, you know, the chairman seems to be involved here and seems to be supporting Blackstone. I said, why is my chairman supporting a non-Indian company here on the res over me? The relationship between James Henriksen and Tex Hall was also personal. As in any small town, people on the reservation began to talk. Take a look at this one here. This is their, 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 on their little paddle boats in Hawaii. Marilyn Hudson and others learned about Tex Hall and James Henriksen's Hawaiian vacation on the internet. Here's Henriksen. Here is uh, his wife, Sarah. And this is Tiffany, that uh, Tex's girlfriend. And then there's Tex. Indian people have a real sense of humor. It probably helped them survive so well. So there's been so many comments about these pictures. What's your relationship with James Henriksen and Blackstone? No relationship. Previously, you know, like uh, 2000, end of 2011, 2012, uh, they were a sub, Blackstone was a, uh, in Hendrickson is involved in Blackstone, was a, was a uh, subcontractor for my issue. And then they were ter terminated, you know, so no relationship. There was a photograph circulating about with you and him in Hawaii. You seem to have a close relationship. 2012, he was, uh, he was, uh, had a subcontract in 2012, but we're talking, what, two years ago? Past that last trailer. Several months after he evicted Henriksen and Blackstone, Tex Hall asked Edmund Baker to remove hazardous waste from his property. I was texted by uh, Mr. Hall saying that I have a few frack socks near my shop. Can you come take care of them? Frack socks are sometimes called the used condoms of the hydrofracking process. They filter residue from production water and pick up naturally occurring radioactivity. This is what they look like after they've been used a bit. Most frack socks exceed the limits for radioactivity allowed in North Dakota landfills, and so they often get dumped illegally. Tex Hall and James Henriksen's businesses both provided hauling services to the oil fields. Can you take care of these? Was, was basically take care of these. Once we got there and saw the amount that was stacked there, question marks above our heads. How in the heck could this happen? They looked like they've been here for a while. How can you be the leader of three tribes and call your regulator and think he'll do a favor for you and be quiet about it? <laughs> the question comes, why didn't you tell anybody at that time? But at the time, the real scare was, how am I going to take care of my family? I'm going to be strong-armed here. I'm going to be a casualty of this. As the environmental director and how I was raised, traditional teachings and upbringing builds a conscience in you. Tex Hall said he did nothing wrong in calling his environmental director. Ultimately, Baker believed the chairman's motivation was to avoid having a search party stumble on the dump site. The timing of when I got these texts to come and retrieve these frack socks was also the same time that they were going to do a physical sweep of this property. We're looking for the young gentleman that had disappeared. 
Christopher Casey Clark had worked for James Henriksen at Blackstone. According to people close to him, the two men had a falling out over money. Clark was last heard from on his way to meet Henriksen on Tex Hall's property. This is the kind of stuff that ends up in crime mystery books, you know. <laughs> the possibility of finding a body on the property totally eclipses the frack sock thing. People are afraid to get involved, knowing that Blackstone was connected to Mahishu, to Tex. You know, nobody wanted to get on the wrong side of that. But it doesn't take away from the fact that somebody's child is missing out here. This is Casey's house. This is where he lived. Casey Clark went missing almost three years ago, but Lissa Yellowbird Chase hasn't given up searching for his body. A former bounty hunter, Yellowbird devotes her free time to finding missing people, living and dead. I was told that they basically made a midnight run out here and, and dumped Casey's body out here. They put him in there and let him sit in there for the rest of the workday, and that's why nobody witnessed him coming out. She didn't know Casey Clark personally, but she responded to his mother's desperate postings on Facebook. 50,000 flyers went out. We wanted people to say, hey, something happened. We need to look into this. We need to question what happened. Okay, we're here. This is one particular place that I want to check out. She also helped produce a video describing what she learned of Casey Clark's disappearance. According to people who knew him, Clark was planning to leave Blackstone to work for a competitor when he went missing. It's after dark. They're out here. They're trying to get rid of a body. That's how you got to think. Dragging a box of 130-pound material. I have a lot of contacts, and some, some of them are involved. And I think they're getting a little bit of conscience back, so he's a bone. Her efforts got the attention of local investigators. But without a body for evidence, the Casey Clark case seemed to go cold. The law enforcement agency will say it's not a crime to go missing. Tex Hall kept ties with Blackstone for a year after Clark vanished. During that time, Blackstone collected more than half a million dollars from the tribes. Tex Hall approved those invoices without disclosing his conflict of interest. Then, last winter, businessman Doug Carlisle had been ambushed. may have hired a man to kill Carlisle and shot him multiple times as part of a contract killing. A Spokane businessman named Doug Carlisle was shot to death in his kitchen. He's also connected. Police found a glove with DNA that helped identify the accused killer, a man named Timothy Suckow. And in his getaway van was a written plan for attack and contact information for James Henriksen. According to the arrest report, Henriksen had been fighting with Carlisle over an oil lease purchase on Fort Berthold Reservation. It all finally got out of hand. When, when it came out that Doug Carlisle got killed, that kind of said, hey, you know, who are we dealing with here? And why are they associated with our chairman? After reading the arrest report, the tribe's attorney, Damon Williams, began investigating Henriksen and Blackstone. First of all, I'm just like, man, this is a horrific murder, you know. Then you flip to the back of the report and it starts talking about tax. It starts talking about the three affiliated tribes. It starts talking about murder and all these companies. 
I would have never looked into Blackstone if I hadn't seen that murder report. After learning of the murder, the Tribal Business Council passed an emergency amendment barring elected members from doing business with oil companies on the reservation. And it hired a former U.S. attorney to investigate Tex Hall. Companies who left the reservation acknowledged that, yeah, we were told to give all the contracts to the chairman's company or Blackstone or someone like that. We created this monster. I just think he was looking to be the big shot and be as rich as he could. And this guy was very experienced at scamming people, it looks like, from the various transactions that were moving around because he wasn't paying a lot of people. Hendrickson wasn't. I think he was duped. I think James and Sarah were charismatic very manipulative people. Um, from what I understand, they actually did their homework before they even got here. The fallout from his association with Henriksen did not stop Tex Hall from running for a fourth term as tribal chairman. The day before the primary, tribal members protested outside their government office, demanding to see the report on Tex Hall. In it were findings that the chairman had run a virtual joint venture with Henriksen and Creveling and shared in Blackstone's profits. Because, you know, ever since we read this, we've had to carry it around on our shoulders because we knew what we had to do with it. In a phone interview, Tex Hall repudiated the report, calling it a smear campaign, and said James Henriksen had conned him out of money. And we tell everybody when we testify where we go that we're the Mandan, Hidatsa, the Rickeron. Tex Hall came in fourth place in the primary. That same day, James Henriksen was federally charged with two counts of murder for hire in the deaths of Casey Clark and Doug Carlisle. If it wasn't for good people on our tribal council, we would have slid the dictatorship a long time ago. Leading up to Election Day in November, the remaining candidates campaigned on messages of change and reform. You see the intensification of conflicts, of, of turmoil, of dispute, everything amongst our people. And it's money. It's about money, really, reality. Greed is a powerful factor. Really excited to see who gets the chair. Well, there's a, a difference of 107 votes between uh, the candidate I support, Damon Williams, versus Mark Fox. Damon Williams is 46.87%. Mark Fox, a former lawyer, won the election by a slim margin. Mark is going to come up and uh, address the crowd here, so let's now join the new chairman. I want to bring honor back to you by doing my job right, by, by being a respectable leader. Many tribal members have not benefited from oil production and still struggle to meet basic needs. Perched on the shore of Lake Sakakawea is a 96-foot reminder of tribal leaders' misplaced priorities. Tex wanted a yacht. Tex wanted a boat. It's a status symbol, and we need to get away from that. It's an albatross of a bad, selfish time that this tribe has gone through. It's our last hurrah, I call it. It's our last chance. And once our oil is gone, and the reservation is probably destroyed to some degree, what will we have left, you know, for generations to come?
Traditional drum circles like this strike a powerful heartbeat throughout Indian country. But on some reservations, native youth are adopting a different rhythm. Coming up a young G, another native kid not giving a f talking about the crazy shit I did. I ain't gonna lie, I come from a broken home. I'm a straight rider, leave you with a broken doom. Taking killer hits to the board. This is the Pine Ridge Sioux Reservation, South Dakota, one of the poorest places in the country, and it's increasingly plagued by gangs who imitate urban groups like the Crips and Bloods. I'm 33rd, Northside Trade Trade Gangsta Crip, you know, 33rd, you know. So. 24-year-old Richard Wilson has already carried five of his fellow gang members to the grave because of drugs, suicide, and gang violence. Yeah, this is where our Lakota, you know, Lakota people came from, you know, just right around here. I've been up on a reservation all my life, you know. A lot of people say it's um, like trash, you know, but to me, it's just like, you know, living in a ghetto, you know? I mean, I mean, it's just like living in the city, you know? People fighting each other, shooting each other, you know? Someone's getting beat up every other night. This is my brother. I just turned 24, man, so this is my, me and my brother. He and his 18-year-old half-brother, Richard Lame, are two of an estimated 5,000 youths involved with gangs on the Pine Ridge Reservation. That's one of every 10 people. We had uh, the Wild Boys, TBZ, we had Trey Trays, we had Nomads. A-Town, Eastern Side, you know, Indian Mafia, Amster Gangsters, you know, I could go on, I mean... Then they got this is John Musso. He served as a local police officer for 14 years before becoming chair of the Tribal Judiciary Committee. He says that the number of gangs proliferated in the 1990s when money for tribal law enforcement dropped. But recently, violence is increasing. In recent years, there's been uh, some homicides, which is kind of... Uh, just don't happen in small communities. So assaults against police officers, against people that's not gang related, it, it, it continued to rise and a lot of intimidation. So it, it started affecting our, 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 the whole public. Many native gangs are homegrown, with few, if any, ties to the large urban gangs they take their names and style from. So we got our gang members, they, they burn their arms, so like branding, so they burn them. The difference between our gangs and big city gangs are, in the cities, they're territorial. You know, they, they claim a neighborhood, and when they sell drugs, it's for profit for the gang. There are one or two people profit, and they show a large sum of money. It's not like that here because we're an impoverished people, impoverished land. So it's more, they're fighting over scraps. They're not fighting over money. I got at least 30, 30 homeboys rolling with me. That's Richard Lame. Unlike most, he stayed in school, but he's also a member of the Black Wall Street Boys. I don't know. I do it for, for I don't know, for the joy of it, for the fun. I don't know, for the rush, for the thrill. I guess whatever it is. You get money. That's right. Through, through selling things or through yeah, stealing through selling things, things stealing, robbing, whatever we got to do to get money. With theft and violent crime on the rise. Pine Ridge officials have pled for more funds to bolster law enforcement. And as on other reservations facing gang problems, tribal members here, like Michael Littleboy, are fighting gangs on the cultural front, teaching Lakota language and values. It's like a prayer song, and it's asking uh, for like forgiveness and strength. The gang, right out the door, it's always there, you know, and uh, no matter what, we fight with the spirituality. The singing and dancing and everything, we use that to uh, prevent um, young children from uh, 
gang violence and uh, uh, different things that come on, go on on the reservation. We got a lot of absent parentism. They may be absent because through of, uh, drug abuse, through alcohol abuse. They need to belong somewhere. And just like any other place, that gang gives them that false sense of belonging. Today, Rich Wilson says he's not as active in gangs as he used to be. Ever since birth, I've been waiting for death. You can bet I'm going to be thug until my last breath. And despite his negative lyrics, Richard Lame privately says he wants to leave Pine Ridge and find a profession. Music or computer work, mechanics or something, anything I'm good at, whatever. It's my future ahead anyway. Hopefully it's a good, bright one. Aren't you worried that you might get a criminal record that'll prevent that? Maybe if I keep doing the stuff I'm doing, yeah. Mess up, slip up, sit behind bars, I don't know. Yeah, got to get my, my, my mind right, my thoughts straight. Got to get on top, somehow. My name is Virgil Red Cloud Good. I come to you from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation prisoner of war camp 334. Reservation is a fancy word for concentration camp and where we are to now, today. So I'm sixth generation descent of Red Cloud. Right now in 2021, we still have a lot of houses out there that don't have running water. We still have a lot of houses out there that uh, don't have any plastics on the door, that don't have any glass on the window. And I did say we don't really have economic developments. Here we have two stores. Some communities don't have any, so they have to travel. Like here, we're about 76, 80 miles in a shortcut way to Rapid City, but that's still a long ways. I mean, that's a hundred and some miles just to go after food. We live in extreme poverty, and so we don't have nutritious meals every day. Um, we may have, some may, people may have one at least, but not, not every day and people struggle um, with the food. Imagine only 10% of the population have, are employed. I mean, can you just imagine all these other families are, are not having a job? So how are they surviving? I think a lot of times we, when we go off reservation and we do find employment, we um, encounter racism, whether that's in the job, whether that's in finding housing, um, or being stable in that job. And the perception that they have, and we hear this all the time, that we get government freebies. You know, we're handed these things. What are we handed? We gave up our land for these treaties to be made. So say, for example, like Black Hills, um, they were stolen illegally. Um, look at all the money that they're making off our resources, stolen resources. We're a people that have always evolved through 500 years of oppression, 500 years of the attempt to eliminate us from the very existence of being on the prairie to being where we are today. We are the survivors of the Wounded Knee Massacre. We are the survivors of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. We have always been here and we will continue to be here um, through the generations.
How long have you been in this home? Uh, we've been here for like, what, it's been gone two and a half years, so like two and a half years. We've got a hole right here as well. Going on the outside. So just so I understand, Marnie, do you have running water in the house? Yeah. Oh, okay. There's you plumbing and running water. water. Um, while my brother that's in jail, he's he kind of drank a lot, so he would come over and would have to throw him in jail because I'm, I don't drink. I don't use drugs or nothing. I kind of just am here for the kids. And I love it because like our kids, I don't know, they bring their friends and their friends come to stay. Like some of them come from broken homes too around here. So sometimes on weekends, I have like I told you, I have like 20, 21, 22 kids here. So I said, some of my friends all laughed. They call me Mother Hubbard. I said, always oh, taking in more kids. All the suicides, all the people that you see go through the funeral home. And then now, now I lost my brother. But with the, him passing away, I, I knew he was depressed. I don't want to say he had an addiction. Maybe he did. Maybe it was just to numb the pain. You know, it's hard. You know, you have all these young kids killing themselves. My name is Yvonne DeCorey. I and my colleague Eileen Janice work together in suicide prevention. I also assist at a burger joint called Out of Bounds in Pine Ridge, where many of our youth who work there are at risk. My Lakota name is One Who Saves Lives, and I've never connected it. And the spiritual leader said, you know, you have no fear and you're out there to save young people. You're out there to save lives, to save families. What was your life like before you come to work for us? Have some had so much free time, you know, like I didn't know what to do with it, so it made me sad. But after working here, my mental health started getting a lot better and um, we started going the right way, like the right path in life. How many times have we sent you to institutions for your self-harm? Three. Time? My last time I was sent off, I, it was January 23rd, so a few last months year. ago, a few oh, months no, ago. Yeah, just January. Yeah. But, but yeah. You're, you're doing better now? Yeah. We have good days? Yeah, we're having have better days. days. March of 2020, the ideations and the attempts just soared. Um, I could sometimes I could take seven calls a night. Eileen could take the same amount, and some of our crisis response workers take calls too. So it's not just Eileen and I. There's no magic words. There's nothing magical that we can do to take it all away, and we it's something we all need to go through, and it's hard. We cry with them. We go through it with them. He is alive, but he's on meth. You have to remember he has an addiction. It's not him. But it's dangerous to put him 
to put him in your home because you'll be in harm's way again. Well, we're going to look for him and we'll get back to you, okay? So just, and keep Eileen and I in your prayers because we need prayers. Okay, we'll see you. There's just a level of poverty here that a lot of people don't understand. Um, you, you watch things on TV and you know, you and I see that, those things and that's normal. Whereas there's a lot of young people down here that that's a dream. Mainly people are taking their own lives due to the point of not having any social interactions with each other, um, school closures, not being able to have that connection with their friends, it was taken, all, it was taken away. There, there is a beautiful side to the reservation. There isn't all hardship. You know, you can look at this place as, as, as beautiful just as much as you look at it as much as you hate it. You hear the word resilient used a lot here. The people are resilient, their culture is resilient. And I feel that the area plays a large role in that resilience because it's hard living out here. The winds, the isolation, the distances people have to travel for basic human needs like groceries and school. It's really fast. It's an openness that is unsettling at times. Loneliness, few job opportunities, almost no outlets to turn to. All of these things are designed to wear a person down. And I feel that that speaks immensely upon how resilient people here are. There are those who fear that because of this, their culture and language is in danger. Welcome to Camp Marabone. Uh, we're located on the Cheyenne River Reservation. We can kind of take a look around and, and see what life is like uh, here at camp and uh, 
also on the reservation as a whole. At, at Camp in the Wyatt is to help everyone reach their full potential, spiritually, mentally, physically. It, kind of some of the realities of our area, you know, are that we're pretty remote. There's a lot of depression and suicide and substance abuse kind of in this area. And so we try and provide a safe, supportive environment, you know, for kids to try new things, to feel like they belong to something, and to be surrounded by people that care and that it's okay for them to mess up or act out, and, and we're going to help support them. No no matter what happens and if they can learn how to um, you know find a high naturally you know then that sometimes helps keep them away from you know substance abuse in other areas and I don't know I like what we do I believe in it yeah. a lot of times with the kids because there isn't anything to do there's no outlets where they can kind of you know be themselves be a kid that they don't have support systems from their families. A lot of times one parent will be in jail or both parents will be in jail or one parent will have, you know, left when they were really young. A lot of these kids grow up not having really anything to turn to. And so it's really easy for them to turn to things like meth and alcohol All of those things combined is, is the reason why, why the suicide rate out here is so high. amongst the tribe that recognize this 
and have dedicated themselves to be teachers, to be educators, people who are here to preserve the language and the culture of the Lakota people. Lakota means a friend or ally. And we are a federally recognized tribe. So there's three criteria that we have to meet to be federally recognized. And one is we have to have a language and also a culture and then a land base. So we do have all three. And in regards to the language, we were prohibited from speaking our language from 1890 to 1990. So the language endangerment is of great concern for not only our tribes, but other tribes. And then also the culture, we were prohibited from 1890 to 1978 from practicing or exercising our religious views, our expressions. And so in 1978, the American Indian Freedom of Religion Act was passed. And so that allowed us to offer prayer in, in public areas, whereas before everything was done in secrecy. Today, it's a complete reversal. They're encouraging us to speak our language or to promote the language and culture in all areas of the communities. We're coming forward with more information for the next generation. The whole idea was that with Orville Looking Horse, the keeper of the sacred calf pipe, there was a prophecy of the seventh generation, where if the seventh generation of our people didn't carry forward with the culture and language, then we would probably cease to exist as a tribe. So that seventh generation is now our young adults. So they're the ones that are going to be the leaders into the future. Okay, you're getting it. You're okay. You're, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Just keep trying. We started a youth program about a year ago. What we do in the field here is just work with kids, kind of a Western lifestyle type thing. A lot of times we'll have saddle horses too for the kids to ride. And we supply all the equipment, of course, and, and we just go out and work with the kids and, and kind of help them enjoy themselves. And I've always just liked working with kids. And, and I started this program and it's been a big success. Rodeo used to be a big, huge part of the rite of passage on these reservations and, and that's kind of disappeared. We're trying to bring it back and we're getting there, you know, but it's going to take a little work and, you know, it takes community support and, and we have it now. You know, we're going to win. Good always wins. Just got to hang tough, you know. Well, I'm a Lakota. I practice Lakota way of life. And we don't have a whole lot of people that do that anymore. We're losing our culture. When the culture's gone, there's no longer any such a thing as a Lakota or a Dakota or a Nakota. It's a, there's a sad day coming if, 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 if we don't get the language back and do all that stuff. Because being Lakota, a lot of it is the language. Knowing the language, understanding it. That means all of my relatives. That doesn't mean just, just human relatives, cousins, uncles, aunts. That means that bird over there, that means the fish in the water, that means everything. I'm related to everything. We're all related. Everything in the universe is related. The government has taken away all of our, our whole lifestyle and put us on a very pitiful piece of land and told us to prosper, live and prosper. But 
All it can do is live here and survive. The reservation is a desolate place that is very hard for people to live on, but it is what we have left of our homelands, and it's diminishing through time. So we, we want to protect what we have left and share it with the future. My name is Irana Howe. I'm very proud to be Lakota. I'm proud of my culture. I'm proud of my people. I think people focus on the negative a lot here. There's an oppression here. Don't overanalyze us. Don't overanalyze the alcoholism. You know, you, you can focus on all the negative things that are here. You can focus on all the negative things everywhere else. That's not what we need. Our youth are good youth. Our people are good people. And they've, they, it's in their blood. It's in their core. It, it, it's um, very, very humbling to me. And you can see good in everything. And I really wish the world would just stop the negativity and start seeing the good and change their mindset about a lot of things. We're not hopeless. We're not helpless. Um, we've got spirits here that are hopeless, that bring the hopeless and the helplessness and the despair and the oppression. But those spirits are everywhere. But for whatever reason, it's stronger here. And then maybe when people come onto our reservation or come onto the reservations, that's what they're looking for, is they're looking for that broken down home. They're looking for that story. Like, oh my gosh, that is so pitiful. Nchika, they call it. We're not Nchika. We are strong Lakota people, very strong. And we'll rise. And I believe it'll change. There is always a light, always a light. You just have to choose to see it. The story of this particular reservation, amongst so many other reservations around the country, is one that needs to be told. It needs to be lived. Take kindly the counsel of the earth, gracefully surrounding the things of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it's clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labors and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace with your soul. With all the sham, drudgery, and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful and strive to be happy. Aho. Pilama, my beloved.
Vamos estar com o pé. Minha malacota. Imagina um aqui em Zitio hoje, pai. Que ele é aqui. Lilo Wakan. Mitaki é até Tashunka Witko Tioshpai. Mitaki é Ina Wamblizuya Tioshpai. This is a traditional greeting of my people that I am bound to give, albeit it's a short version. What I said in my own language translated into English thusly. Hello, my relatives. I am an Oglala Lakota, and I come from our very sacred holy land, the Black Hills, where Yellow Thunder Village is. My mother is from the War Eagle clan, and my father's family is from the Crazy Horse clan. This greeting is to this day the way all Indians throughout the nation still greet one another, those that still know their culture. This is the only way we present ourselves to one another that is acceptable. We tell you who we are, where we are from, who we are from, our clans, and we do this without ever saying our name. Anything less would be an insult to you and to my people. Senators, my morning prayers to the great mystery always include you and your colleagues in Congress, as well as leaders in all governments. It is an honor to come before you as a spokesman for my people, the American Indians of the United States of America. In these United States of America, this great country of ours, we American Indians, we can be anything we want to be except American Indians. And that is created by the laws of this nation and condoned by its subsidiaries, the so-called tribal government, and designed for the Indian to fail, to be expendable, to be eliminated. I take you back in your history. After the American Indian hostiles had been subdued and forcibly confined to Indian reservations, it took approximately 30 years, one generation, for us to adjust and become economically viable. Contrary to what the anthropologists say and what we even ourselves are taught as Indian people. However, allotments were made smaller, our remaining lands were open to homesteading, and we were forced into reducing our livestock. Nevertheless, we made the adjustment again in less than half the aforementioned time. 15 years and become economically self-sufficient again. But once again, the American Indian was forced into reducing our livestock. The boss farmer concept was instituted. We were told what, when, where, how much, and how little we could grow. This applied to agriculture and our livestock. Again, we recovered in a time span of approximately 15 years. We were so successful in our third recovery that the American Indians enjoyed the finest of economic times, while the rest of the industrialized world was wallowing in the Great Depression. It was then that President Roosevelt introduced the Howard Wheeler Act, better known as the Indian Reorganization Act, the IRA, which institutionalized the so-called tribal governments 
which are not one of our institutions, and it is still foreign to us this very day. We have yet to recover. Forty-five years later, the IRA, Indian tribal governments, on their own initiative, began renewed efforts at reestablishing their sovereignty focused on the oldest profession of American Indians. That's gambling. Bingo and other gaming operations has been without exception a proven initial success. Failure through mismanagement, politics, or litigation has been less than 15%, showing a better than 85% success rate the new Indian-sponsored gaming industry on reservations dwarfed success ratios of any and all other non-Indian non industries in America. Gaming operations have proven to benefit the revenue gathering of all governments, be they county, state, or Indian reservation. With regulation of bingo and gaming by the Congress, we are experiencing repetition of history. One shouldn't remedy success. The results? The United States government, through Congress, once again intervenes to regulate a proven success in violation of all basic and fundamental rules of economics and totally contrary to all laws of capitalism. American Indians are human beings. We are supposed to be citizens of the United States of America. We fought in your wars in other countries. Our Navajo Nation code talkers served and saved this nation in World War II. We have the inalienable right to joint venture with whom we choose as long as we do not harm nor commit fraud upon anyone. There is no piece of evidence anywhere that proves Indians ever conspired with criminal elements to establish bingo. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, the infamous colonial office of the Department of Interior, and the initiator of sleaze in government has been regulating contracting on Indian reservations since, 19, since 1824. This fact alone should convince and teach every student of government that regulation of commerce and enterprise does not work. In fact, it only produces the opposite result. Graft and corruption is rampant to the contracting auspices of the BIA and its surrogate tribal government. Indian front contractors bid for and receive government contracts only to proceed to build shoddy, dangerous bridges, buildings, schools, roads, and dams. The Indian is the scapegoat when there is a failure and is always the one indicted. Contracting on reservations has proven historically to breed and feed corruption within the BIA and now the tribal governments. Within the past two years, I personally have attempted to assist seven Indian reservations located in the Southwest, the Northwest, and the Northern Plains to no avail. The investors I represented were from various groups interested in establishing banks, resorts, Indian-owned public relations firms, factories, fishing ports, and international trade. I now know that tribal governments do not want economic development unless graft is a major ingredient. The BIA is a major player in land leases being sold by petty bureaucrats for as meager an amount as $40. <coughs> 
There is a scandal of monstrous proportions occurring in at least two Indian agencies, the BIA's branch of land operations and the branch of realty. I challenge this investigations committee to intricately go into real, the branches of realty and land operations. The BIA does not enforce its trust, trust responsibility, quite to the contrary. In September of, 19, of 1987, I moved from the poorest county in America, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, to the richest area in the country, the Navajo Indian Reservation. There is no difference. I paraphrase the former Secretary of the Department of the Interior, James Watt. If you want to see an example of failed socialism, go to an Indian reservation. The poorest and richest reservations in our nation suffer from identical problems. Mismanagement, a bloated patronage system, no checks and balances, and tribal government's waiver of sovereignty in order to initiate debt. This is not anything new. This is an everyday occurrence in all tribal governments. Problem is leadership. In this case, it is the lack of leadership. Ironically, everyone, including you senators, referred to the allegedly elected tribal officials as leaders. Leaders are supposed to work for a better quality of life for their constituents. It is an insult to my heritage, my ancestors, and my dignity as an Oglala Lakota to have the term used loosely. Many of the tribal officials are honest and sincere men and women who have good hearts. Nevertheless, a vast majority of the tribal officials parasite on the incestuous world of tribal politics. Not as our forefathers, who were the best providers, protectors, defenders, advocators, and friends. The game of who is the most important rules. It's embarrassing. At the turn of the century, American Indians numbered about 230,000, all traditional. With each succeeding generation, we lose our population base and our spirit as once proud peoples. The American Indian statistics of deprivation have remained constant since the end of World War II. All other groups of citizens, fortunes rise and fall with the gross national product, the, the GMP. The American Indian statistical lines of deprivation remains constant. A straight line. With the blatant genocide of our traditional people, we have less than 50,000 in America today. We are averaging a loss of 1,000 a year since 1900. We are losing a value system as distinct people that sets us apart from the industrialized world. These facts surface in our tribal statistics, and no one attempts to do anything about it except for a few social workers and reservation police. This new statistical horror is women and child abuse. Child sexual abuse is epidemic on Indian reservations, and all you hear are whispers. This abuse can be directly attributable to the schools on the reservations. 
education in the BIA, public, the contract, and missionary schools do not teach positive values from non-Indian culture, and in collusion with the BIA, certainly do not allow Indian culture and values to be taught. The fact is, educators continually denigrate American Indian traditional lifestyle as primitive, dirty, and without any redeemable virtues. And the tribal councils condone it. Needless to say, every time the U.S. government has interfered with American Indian lifestyles, it has been proven to be disastrous. In the 1960s, legal services were implemented on Indian reservations. It was a boon for the people. Tribal of officials all of a sudden were held accountable. Legal services stepped in, and lo and behold, tribal courts had power to the power of attorney for the people. The result? An edict from Washington, D.C. is handed down, and legal services can no longer represent people against the tribal government, and they can no longer represent class action lawsuits against any government. Presently, legal services are not much more than a mill for divorce lawyer trainees. Congress passed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978. To date, six cases concerning our freedom of religion has reached the Supreme Court. We lost every one of them. We do not win lawsuits. State governments lose. The only time we allegedly win a lawsuit, it is in reality the federal government winning out over the sovereign rights of a state. Once again, the American Indians are the pawn. Now, the major factors presenting American Indian people with existing rights to self-determination. American Indians suffer under a system of dual citizenship. That is, U.S. citizenship and tribal citizenship maintained by the BIA. Only Hitler did that. The dual citizenship is a major obstacle in the free exercise of individual and tribal sovereignty. The continuing loss and attrition of existing lands through various federal, state, and local laws and or regulations is a hindrance. The abridgment of sovereign rights to remaining lands and the arbitrary monetary policies of settlement of these rights whenever they are recognized. Another major factor preventing Indian people from self-determination, subjugation of the American Indian individual to the laws of government sponsored tribal governments and the continuing arbitration of the BIA rules and regulations which have the force of law yet are not repealable. Solutions. The American Indian people's right to self-determination is recognized and will be implemented through the following policies. The American Indian individual shall have the right to choose his or her citizenship. And the American Indian nations have the right to choose their level of citizenship and autonomy up to absolute independence. The American Indian will have their just property rights restored, which include rights of easement, access, hunting, fishing, prayer, and water. The BIA will be abolished with the American Indian tribal members deciding the extent and nature of their governments, if any. 
Negotiations will be undertaken to exchange otherwise unclaimed and unowned federal property for any and all government obligations to the American Indian nations and to, fully, and to hold fully liable those responsible for any and all damages which have resulted from the resource development on or near reservation lands, including, including damages done by careless and inexcusable disposal of uranium mill tailings and other mineral and toxic wastes. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me here. It's been a high honor, especially since I'm the only one invited here today to testify that doesn't receive money from the federal government. <laughs> also, I want to make, I was introduced as a former founder and leader of the American Indian Movement to the tribal chairwomen that you have here, our former associates of the American Indian Movement back in the days when we were gross militants. And so I just wanted to let you in on that, that the American Indian Movement is a very proud continuing part of American Indian society. I thank you. Mr. Means, thank you. You certainly uh, have left us with uh, many provoking uh, thoughts about the problems facing Indian uh, American Indians today. And uh, you were uh, kind enough and wise enough to uh, also make some suggestions. I think that is uh, what this committee is looking for. We may agree, we may not agree with them, but it is important to have some uh, thought-provoking ideas of where we should go uh, from the standpoint of the relationship between the federal government and the American uh, natives. Good night, and that's a wrap. Body talk. Hey, uh, hey!